announce that uh, the final sermon, we've been going through uh, this series called Building Up for a few months now, and this has been the sermon I've been most excited to preach, uh, uh, to be honest. It's not that I've, uh, that we've begrudgingly gone through the other ones. I've been thrilled and glad to preach those as well, but this is the one I've been looking forward to uh, the most, and I think you'll see why. But uh, this is an author and speaker named Stephen Covey. Uh, he wrote a famous book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People uh, that some of you may have read. And he has famously said, and this is some deep philosophy here. Are you ready for this? We'll have this phrase up on the screen that he said. He famously said that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So that's a lot of repetition there, simple words. But, but uh, the main thing is to keep the main thing main thing. And what he's addressing there is a a common tendency we have as individuals or as any group of human beings that comes together uh, to slowly drift away from the things that are of first importance. Uh, That maybe we begin really strongly have a clear focus about what we're to be about, what we're to to focus on, but we not typically intentionally, but often unintentionally kind of drift away from that. We move away from what our true purpose is, what our, our primary focus should be, and we need reminders like that. Whatever the main thing is supposed to be, do everything in your power to keep it the main thing. Uh, don't let other things take its place. Don't let other things uh, take over. Don't let them become predominant, but keep the main thing the main thing. And this is not just Stephen Covey's brilliant idea, this is God's idea uh, that, that he gives us in these very verses that we're going to read this morning, that as his people, as a church and as individual Christians, there is a main thing. We are to keep the main thing. And as we've been talking the last few months, uh, taking some extended time to walk through 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14, we've given a lot of time to think about this issue of spiritual gifts because we find it in God's word, we find it to be important and true and needful for us. But there's been questions that have come up in private conversation and even in, in group conversation has been good questions to ask. Many people have asked, uh, are we as a church, as we seek to pursue the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he gives, and as we seek to practice them as he would give them, are we going to have a new main thing? Is that going to become the main thing that our church is about? Is that going to start to take over and become predominant? Is our church's focus that we've long appreciated, is it going to shift somehow as we move into the future? I've been grateful and the elders have been grateful that in God's providence in how Paul wrote this very book of 1 Corinthians that as he addressed those issues of spiritual gifts in chapters 12, 13, and 14 that he does not skip a beat. He doesn't even take another breath before he tells us in the beginning of chapter 15 what the main thing must be. What it is, what it always must be for God's people. And so we get to read that this morning and have this be, in a sense, the capstone of what we've been talking about. Uh, And it comes very next in this very scripture. And we're going to see what God says is the main thing for any church and for our church included and how we keep it the main thing. I'm going to read for us the first, we'll just go up to verse 8. It was hard to think of a way to have a natural stopping point because Paul's about to pick up these grand themes of resurrection and eternal life. Uh, But verses 1 through 8 are are wonderful and important and significant for us to remember at at what I think is a a pivotal time in the life of our church as we seek to grow in our our use uh, and the practice of the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. So follow along with me uh, in your copies of the scriptures. 
Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, I would remind you, brothers, that was the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the word of God. Now, Paul, in this letter, we uh, have looked at just a few of what we call chapters in this letter, but if you were to start back at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, you would see that Paul wrote to this church and addressed all sorts of issues with there is a lot of things, as there is in any church, there was a lot of things that were messed up with how they practiced and operated, how they lived together. Paul has addressed a whole bunch of issues as he's written this letter to them, uh, uh, taking a lot of time and, and love and attention as he did. But now as he's getting towards the close of this letter, he wants to make it painfully clear to them and to all of us who now read it uh, later, make it painfully clear what the main thing is supposed to be. That all the things he's mentioned beforehand, including spiritual gifts, are not the main thing. They're important. He takes time to write about them and under the inspiration of the Spirit to give guidance about them. But they are not the main thing. And he wants them to know that. These are not the main thing. What I'm about to tell you is the main thing. I delivered it to you as of first importance, he says. And we see right in verse 1 what this main thing is. What the main thing thing is that Paul delivered to them and that God has now delivered to us and it's not rocket science but it is deeper than you can ever possibly imagine. He says that it is the gospel that I preach to you. He says that's what I want to remind you of. After I've told you about all of these things, all these issues, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preach to you. And in verse 3 he says I delivered it to you of, as of first importance. I delivered it to you urgently, and I, I wanted you to know from the beginning, this is what is most important, is the gospel. And we use that word a lot, gospel in our culture at least, but the gospel, that word very simply means good news. That there was this message of good news that, that Paul had received, and that he then delivered to this church. It was a message of good news. I think that's an understatement. It's awesome, great, grand, excellent news that he delivered to them. But we're going to see that it was, uh, it was news about actual events that took place. Not just like ideas or philosophies or, or things that Paul had in his mind or that the other apostles kind of conjured up. It's a message about things that actually happened on this planet outside the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Good news about actual things that actually took place, that factually took place with the person of Jesus. And we use that, for, that term, gospel, a lot. But I'm thankful that in verses 3 and following, down even through verse 8, that we get to see what the content of that is. That we don't just say gospel and just kind of use it in some vague sense. But Paul tells us, he elaborates what the gospel is.
gospel is, what those events are that he had told them, that, that he had passed on to them, we see in verses 3 and following. I want to take a few minutes to walk through that and articulate that, lest we just hear the word gospel and it goes in one ear and out the other, to hear how Paul described it, the things that he said were contained in the gospel message. There's these facts about Jesus and his life. And you see it start in verse 3. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he starts by saying someone died. Have you ever thought about that? This is supposed to be good news. It's supposed to be excellent news. And he starts off with death. But the first part of the good news is that Christ died. And this is what makes it good news. For our sins. Christ died for our sins. That may seem odd place to start with good news, but that is where Paul starts, is that Christ died for our sins. And we see so much in that little phrase, that Christ died for our sins. When Christ died on that cross outside of Jerusalem, it was not just a, a criminal, a man who was misunderstood and who, who was just uh, betrayed by a friend and executed because some priests were mad at him. Those were all certainly true. But there was way more going on when Jesus died on the cross. Because he was dying for our sins. His death upon the cross was as a sacrifice for our sins. There have been these images, even uh, throughout the Old Testament, in accordance with the scriptures, right? There have been these images of animals that had to be sacrificed and actions that, that God's people had to do when they would sin to, to, in a sense, make atonement for their sin. And when Jesus died upon the cross, he was the fulfillment of all those things. He was a sacrifice for our sin, but he was also a substitute for us. It wasn't just that someone else needed to die for our sins. We were deserving of death. Like we were deserving of God's anger. We were deserving of God's wrath as sinners. Me included, you included. We were all deserving of God's judgment. But when Christ went to the cross, he took our sins upon himself. He was innocent. He had no sins of his own. He allowed and the, the sins of others to be counted to him and willfully took our sins upon himself. And then God the Father crushed him. Not just some soldiers who were taken delight in it and, and running swords through his side and putting crowns of thorns on his head. God the Father crushed him. A death that should have been ours. A judgment that should have been ours taking the wrath of God. Christ died for our sins so that we might not have to be recipients of that judgment. That is a start of good news, that Christ died, but not just died, he died for our sins. But Paul continues in verse 4, he says, Christ died for our sins. In verse 4 he says, part of this good news is that he was buried again. Doesn't seem like the start of good news to talk about a funeral or a burial of a person. That's not typically a message we associate with being good and one that would inspire joy or hope in us. But Paul says that this is an important part of the gospel, is that Jesus was buried. This may seem like a throwaway comment to us, but this is important because the fact that Jesus was buried in a tomb nearby outside Jerusalem is evidence, it is confirmation that he was verifiably dead. But they did run a sword through his side and blood and water came out and his lifeless, not breathing, not conscious body was wrapped in linens by his friends and laid in a grave that was publicly known. 
as soldiers were even sent to guard. He was buried, and there is evidence that he was indeed dead. And it seemed in that burial, if you could imagine being a, a fly on the wall, a fly on a tree nearby as that burial was taking place, it would have seemed as though evil had triumphed. You know, this man who is supposed to give hope to humanity that is saying he's God, that is saying he can rescue us, that he's laying in the grave just like all of us will someday. He was buried, Paul says. But verse 4, is uh, the second half of verse 4 is where we start to see how this becomes great, grand, infinitely good news because the one who died for our sins and who was buried, at the end of verse 4 he says, Part of this good news is then that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he was resurrected from the dead. That Friday morning he had been put to death upon the cross. That Saturday, all day long he had spent in the grave, dead as dead can be. But on Sunday morning, God the Father raised him back from the dead, never to die again. He brought his body, his lifeless body, back to life, not just in a body like ours, but an indestructible body that would never suffer, that would never die, that would never have sickness, that would never have disease. God the Father gave him a body that was indestructible. And that is hugely significant, his resurrection, because it shows us a few things. The fact that he was raised from the dead by the Father. It shows us first that his sacrifice was effective. That, that we who are deserving of so much judgment and anger and wrath from God, if he had not raised him up from the dead, we may wonder if it's still being dealt out, if there's still some wrath for God to pour out to Jesus. But God raised him back from the dead to show us, and any who would ever hear the news, that 100% of the penalty for sin has been paid. That there is no more wrath to lay down upon Christ. It was all laid upon him, all absorbed, all taken by him. There is no wrath left to be poured out for our sin. It also shows us that the Father approved of Jesus. That, that the resurrection, I don't know if you found this right before, but it is a reward to Jesus for his obedience. It's a reward to him for his obedience, like we read about, to the point of death on the cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him. He, he raised him up because he was rewarding him for his obedience, even to the point of death in our place. And the resurrection of Jesus is a public vindication of Jesus by God the Father. Because the mockers and Satan himself and his enemies would have viewed Jesus and his death as a sign of God's curse. As a, as a sign that this guy was a joker, a clown, that he was not able to do what he said he could do. But God the Father is saying, I beg to differ. But you may think things about him, but I think and I know what is true of him, that he did not die for his own sin. He died for the sins of you. And I am rewarding him for it. How dare you say that he is a curse? He is blessed by me. So the resurrection shows us that. And it also shows us that death has been conquered. Every human being that came before Jesus, other than maybe Elijah, I don't know how he got out of that, where he got, got taken up into heaven, uh, but every other human being was laid in the grave, including Jesus. But one walked back out of it. One of them walked back out of having experienced death, and now he has conquered it. And his resurrection is proof positive to us that someday he will raise us up as well. That God has raised a human being from the dead, 
shows us that he will raise all human beings from the dead, either to eternal life or to eternal judgment. That is part why this is good news, that he was raised on the third day. But then Paul doesn't finish there. He includes part of the gospel that sometimes we do not. When he four times in verses 5, 6, and 7 mentions that Jesus appeared. Did you see that? He, he mentions that Jesus appeared to many individuals. So he says first, if you follow along in verse 5, it says that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. We don't even know when that took place. Most of whom he says are still alive, though some have died. Then in verse 7 he says, He appeared to James, then to all apostles. And I can see almost Paul just smiling when he writes verse 8. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The man who wrote this letter is not just waxing poetic about what other people have seen and what other people have experienced, but he is, he is one who had Jesus appear to him. Thank you, brother. Uh, he is one who had Jesus appear to him. He saw the resurrected Jesus. He's not, this isn't just wishful thinking on his part or secondhand knowledge. Paul himself had the resurrected Jesus appear to him. This is a big deal to Paul. He mentions it four times that Jesus appeared. He appeared. He appeared. He appeared. Why is that important? Why did, was that part of what Paul is communicating as of first importance? This is important because it demonstrates to us that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. There are many people to this day, and people will continue to say this till Jesus returns and shows once and for all, verifiably to everyone, that he was raised from the dead. There are people today who still say that Jesus just was resurrected in spirit. That kind of his spirit lived on in, in his apostles. Nonsense like that. Paul is saying, and reiterating to the Corinthian church, Jesus was raised from the dead. I saw him. Peter saw him. 500 people saw him all at once. And if you think there was some psychological, wishful thinking, go talk to the 500 people who experienced that all at the same time and come back and talk to me. People ate with him. People talked with him. People walked down roads with him. He had a cookout on the beach with his disciples. He was physically raised from the dead. And he didn't just appear to his friends. He appeared to Paul who was killing Christians. The resurrected Jesus confronted him and wanted him to see, I am alive, Paul. Like this, you think this is a lie, this is a hoax that everybody's making out about me. It is assuredly not, Paul. I am as alive as life can be, and you better stop persecuting me. And Paul's life was forever changed because Jesus appeared to him, physically resurrected. This is undeniably good news that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. This is good news. And Paul is saying, I delivered it to you as a first importance. This is the main thing. We need to talk about the other things. We need to learn. We need to, to grow. We need to obey. But this is the main thing, the good news. It's of first importance. But the question is, in the spirit of Stephen Covey, is how do we keep the main thing the main thing? How do we do that? How do we keep it from just becoming secondary or playing second fiddle to other issues that we want to emphasize even more? I'm going to quickly mention five ways we see in this text, ways that we can keep the main thing the main thing as a church. 
and even as individual Christians. The first one is this, is that we receive it. We receive it. You look back at verse 1, Paul says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. This is the initial response to that good news of Jesus, of his death and resurrection and appearance, uh, is that we receive it. This probably goes without saying, but to keep something the main thing, it actually has to be the main thing first, right? It actually has to become the main thing to you because none of us are born thinking the gospel is the main thing. We're born. Satan would check those boxes. He was there and had a front row seat to all of it. To know that, all the, that Jesus really did die, that he really was buried, that he really was raised, that he really did appear to all these people. Receiving a gospel is way more than just saying, yep, I think that happened. I think a miracle took place that God raised him from the dead. This gospel message is not just some detached story of history. That you can just say, yes, I think it happened. He died. This text ties us into it. It says, for our sins. For our sins. We can't just stay distant from it. We need to lean into this and believe it and receive it and say, yes, Christ died for me. And I'm broken because of it, that my sin necessitated his death, or we just keep it as a distance and see ourselves detached from it. That is not receiving the gospel. There are many, I would guarantee, in this room, because I grew up this way, who factually would check the box of the gospel events, but who have not received the gospel. The gospel is an indictment of us. Like, we are guilty. We're not just passive observers that we are guilty and we need to let the gospel tell us that and say, that is true. I am guilty, but thank you, God, that Christ died for my sins. I place my trust in him. I don't want to keep sinning. I don't want to keep rebelling against him. I repent, God. I repent. I repent. Please forgive me. And he says he is glad to. That is receiving the gospel. To repent of my sins and place my faith, place my trust in Jesus. Not just that this is true, but that it was for and that he can forgive me, and that he can save me. And I will call upon anyone in this room, whether you have been a church goer all your life, and you would check the boxes of the facts of the gospel but never receive it, or whether this is brand new news to you, I will call upon each of us in this room to have this same response, receive the gospel, to acknowledge your sin, to acknowledge your guilt, and to have confidence that Christ paid the penalty for you that he is glad and willing to forgive you. And I promise you, if you cry out to him, he will save you. He says it's by, this gospel message is by which you are being saved. You will not find forgiveness or salvation anywhere else than in the message I just told you. So receive it, believe it. But that's the first thing, is that we have to receive it. It has to actually be the main thing to us if we're going to keep it the main thing. But the second thing I would say, the second way we keep the gospel the main thing is that we remember it. Paul started this text by saying, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. The gospel is not just something you hear once and then, okay, got that down, I don't need to hear that again. I can move on to, to deeper things or, or more complicated things. Paul is reminding them of the gospel. These people who knew it, who had believed it, he's reminding them of it. He's saying, I want you to remember it. And we as human beings are prone to forget even the most important of things. Like how many of us, I won't have you raise hands, have forgotten our anniversary 
or I've forgotten that a holiday is coming up, or forgotten the lesser things, forgot to pay bills, forgot to do, we forget stuff all the time. And just because the gospel is this grand message doesn't mean we're never going to forget it. Like we do, we can and do forget it if we don't intentionally let ourselves be reminded of it. If we don't intentionally seek to remember of it. We've all had that experience of forgetting things that we think, how could I have forgotten that? That was so important. We do that all the time. And if we are to remember the gospel, repetition is essential. This is, I mean, when we try to memorize Bible verses in our home, we repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. When we try to memorize and learn anything, repetition is such an important thing, and it's the same with the gospel. We need to repeat the gospel over and over and over. It is of first importance after all. That's why every Sunday when we gather together, the gospel is in our song. The gospel is in our prayers. The gospel is in our sermons. We, every time that we gather together as a church, we will proclaim the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the appearing of Jesus because we cannot hear it enough. Martin Luther said that the gospel cannot be preached and heard enough because it cannot be grasped. Like it cannot be preached and heard enough because it cannot be grasped well enough. We need to hear it over and over and over. And if we don't remember the gospel, if we don't revisit it and let it be instructive to us, we will revert back to our old ways. We will either revert back to a life where we just didn't care about Jesus at all, where he was nothing to us, where, where he was just not even on our radar screen, or more common in a church-going crowd, we will revert back to our religious attempts to impress God. We will revert back to our attempts to make ourselves godly, to make ourselves clean before God, and both of those are damning ways to go. We will revert back to those things if we don't remember the gospel that Christ died for our sins. He was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. Our church has been and will be marked by what is the same week to week and year to year. Not by what is new and what's fresh and what's unique and what's relevant to people. We want to speak into the hearts and lives of people, but we must be marked and be known for what is the same every Sunday. What is the same every year? What is the same every decade of the life of our church? Not by what is new and fresh and innovative. So we must remember it. The third thing I would say you see in this text is that we stand that's the way that we keep the main thing, the main thing. At the end of verse 1, he says, So I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. And he says, in which you stand. So he kind of uses a new metaphor here, in which you stand. I, I would say that this, we can see in sort of two different ways, this idea of standing in the gospel. One is what I would call the, a positional standing. That we actually, he says, in which you stand. The gospel is a story. It is the story of the universe. It is the story of God and his mercy towards sinners. And in his kindness, he has brought us into that story. He has brought us into that, that, that narrative. He has brought us into his family. The gospel is not just a little story about your life. It is a story about the entire universe. It is a, it's a story about God's glory and God's justice, and he brings us into that. We are not on the outside looking in. We are brought into it. We, we've moved kind of from being spectators maybe of a play to being actors in the play. We've been moved, this maybe is a better analogy, we've been moved and transferred from people who are enemies of God, 
who are brought into the camp of the one who was our enemy and aren't just treated as like POWs who are just uh, taken for granted and mistreated, but we've been treated as royalty. We've been treated as sons and daughters. We have been received. We stand in the gospel. It's not just, a, I hear, I've heard Pastor Larry say this and I love this, the gospel is not just a door we walk through, it is a house we live in. Like it's not just a message you hear once. I'm like, oh, thank God I don't have to go to hell. Now I can just live on the rest of my life. Like you walk through the door of the gospel and then you live in the house of the gospel. You keep learning over and over and over every day, every uh, month, every year of your life how wonderful God's grace is to you. We stand in it. We don't stand in our different camps about spiritual gifts. We don't stand in our different camps about what we believe about the end times, or what we believe about other church governments or things like this. We stand in the gospel. Like, that is where we find our deepest, truest unity is in the gospel. So, positionally, we stand in the gospel, but even posture-wise, we stand in the gospel. He says, the gospel in which you stand. There's this idea here of firmness and resolve. Like there's this refusal to budge, this refusal to move out of it, to, to step back from it. The gospel is what gives us backbone and steadiness and sturdiness as individual people and as a church when Satan comes against us. When we feel shame, when we feel guilt, the gospel is what gives us resolve to continue. When we feel and experience opposition from him, the gospel is what motivates us to press forward and to fight on behalf of Christ to make the gospel known. So we posture-wise, stand in the gospel. The, the fourth way that we see that we can keep the main thing, the main thing is that we hold fast to it. So we, we stand in it, but we also hold fast to it. If you look at verse 2, he just says, so the gospel in which you stand, verse 2 he says, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. I don't want you to bounce your eyes over that word, if. That is an important word in this passage. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. What Paul is clearly saying is that there are some people who in some way, shape, or form loosely grab on to the gospel. But then they let go of it. They don't hold fast to it. They, they drop it, maybe per, purposefully or unintentionally. They, they grab it in some way, shape, or form, but then they let go of it. And Paul is saying, if that is the way you hold on to the gospel, you are not being saved by it. You, you should not have confidence if you just dropped it and let go of it that, that you are being saved by it. That, that, that Christ is, is saving you. We must regularly hold fast to the gospel. John Stott said this, he said, All around us, we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling it, and in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. And that is the fate of every person, every church, if we don't purposefully hold fast to it. If we don't latch onto it and grab it. And I would say this two ways, that we need to have a strong grip and we need to have a long grip on the gospel. Like, we grasp different things differently, right? The different levels of pressure and strength. The gospel is one we better hold on to with all the strength that we have. There's a different way that you grab, I was thinking of Christmas, I'm in an early Christmas mode. There's a different way you grab an ornament that's delicate that you're about to put on the tree and the way that you grab a saw when you're about to cut down that tree, 
right? There's force and there's strength of how you hold on to certain things. And the gospel is one we better hold on to with all the might of our souls. That we don't just hold it loosely and delicately. We cling to that thing. It can withstand however much pressure you want to put on it, okay? We hold fast to the gospel. But we also need to have a long grip on the gospel. That we don't just grab onto it strongly for a year or even for a decade, but we grab onto that thing until Christ comes back or until we go to be with him. We hold on to it long. Physically speaking, when we grab onto things for very long, our fingers start to just give out and our grip starts to, to weaken, but not so spiritually. We need to be people who grip stronger and stronger as we get older to that gospel, knowing that it is my only hope. And my hope, ne- I cannot find it in anything else. So I must never let it go. I must never even loosen my grip on it. We must cling to the gospel and have confidence that if we hold faster, that we are being saved by it, that, that Christ is holding on to us, which is of infinite more importance. So we must hold fast to the gospel. It is our only hope of salvation. We must, I think, I was thinking of this, I don't know if this will be helpful to people, but I, because we have two hands, we like to think that we can grasp onto multiple things at once. But we have one soul. And there's many of us who like to think, well, I can grasp onto the work of Jesus for me, but then I'm going to hold on to my good works as well. And I'm going to hope that if, if what Jesus did really doesn't matter to God, I'm going to hope I'm, I was a good enough person and I can bring that to the table to God. And you may have two hands to hold on to things with your body, but you have one soul and you can only hold on to one thing when you come before God. And it is the good news of Christ and what he has done for you. And drop everything else. Like, don't, you can't hold on to multiple things, but you shouldn't want to hold on to other things to bring to God. Hold on to the gospel, and it will save you. He will save you. And I will say this, when it comes to spiritual gifts, may we remember that we hold fast to the gospel. That is the tightest grip we can possibly have. We will not drop it, because that's how you lose things. But we will hold fast to it. But when it comes to secondary issues, those are issues we hold more lightly. We're convinced that the gifts of the Spirit continue uh, to be given and should be practiced today in the life of churches as the Spirit gives them. But that is not as core of an issue as the gospel. And every brother or sister in this room can hold fast to the same gospel. And as a church, we hold fast to the same gospel. And when it comes to these secondary issues, we hold them more lightly. We hold them uh, with more delicacy, with more gentleness. We press on in what we think is obedient, but we hold fast the gospel with a long grip and a strong grip. And the fifth way that I say that we hold fast to the gospel is that we don't just keep the gospel to ourselves, but the fifth one would be that we preach it, that we preach the gospel. And I don't mean just up here on Sundays. I mean that we preach it in our workplaces. We preach it in our homes. We preach it in our neighborhoods. We preach it in the, the marketplace. We preach it in Papua New Guinea and we preach it in Tanzania, and we preach it wherever else we'll send people in the future. We preach it, we preach it, we preach it. You see this in verse 1. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. The gospel is not known by people unless it is spoken by people. The gospel comes to people on the lips of, his, of God's people, of Christ's people, that we must preach the gospel. He says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And so we have a responsibility to preach the gospel. 
When we're gathered together as Christians, we preach it. When we go out into the world, we preach it. We preach it. We preach it. We preach it. As a church, we've been trying to use the phrase more and more, and you'll hear this more and more, that as a church, we strive to reach the nations and the generations with the gospel of Christ. That is what we take to people. That is what will bring life to people. That is what will bring hope to people. It's not just us serving them and providing some tangible service to them, although we can do that and we ought to do that, but what will bring them life, what will bring them salvation is the gospel of Christ. And we must preach that till we die or he returns. We will preach the gospel of Christ. I love, uh, some of us are on an app called Slack. And uh, it's cool that we can even communicate with some of our missionaries uh, while they're out on the field. And we got a message, some of us sent a few days ago from Chris Jones. You might have heard me pray about this season. But uh, Chris Jones, serving in Papua New Guinea amongst the paid people, uh, wrote us and said, hey, pray for me. Uh, because our team is translating John chapter 3. And he was so excited about it. And that is where there's this message of, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that is what he is pumped. That is what he is thrilled to deliver to these people. It's the same message we preach to people here. We must preach the gospel. And as we do, as we preach the gospel, it reminds us of how important it is to us. As we call other people to cast their souls upon it as, and call them to grasp upon it, we realize and remember how important it is for us to hold on to it, for us to stand in it, for us to believe it and to receive it. Uh, we remember as we preach, we remember its significance even to us. And we do not change the gospel to accommodate people. We don't update it. We don't innovate it. We don't modify it. We don't cut off certain parts of it. We take what was delivered to us and we deliver it to them. That's what Paul says that he did. He says, I delivered to you as a first importance what I received. This message he's saying is not one I just made up, Paul's saying. Christ gave it to me. I give it to you. And people have now passed it down in time. It's been recorded in the scriptures for us and it has come to us. And we dare not change it. Like, we cannot change the gospel. We can't improve it. Now, how arrogant would that be for us to try to innovate or improve it? We tell, as I grew up saying, we tell the old, old story of Christ. Amen? This ancient story, but that has relevance for every person of every culture, of every generation, is the gospel. And we preach it as a first importance because it is the power of God to save. What we believe about spiritual gifts cannot save anyone. The gospel can and does save people, and we must preach it. CCC has always been a gospel-centered church, and that is not going to change and must not change. Our desire, our prayer, our hope for the, the increased practice of spiritual gifts, even in our gatherings, it is never to become the main thing. There's a reason even visually we're going to have the microphone that we use in January off to the side. That that is not going to be the prominent main thing that we do as a church, although we view it as good and as a blessing of God. But these gifts of the Spirit that we've learned about the last few months, rather than taking place of the gospel, I believe and the elders believe and the Word of God teaches that they will actually help us to do what we've talked about actually help us to remember the gospel. 
to actually motivate us to stand in it, to stand strong in it. They will motivate us and encourage us to hold tighter to the gospel, not to prophecy, but to the gospel. Uh, they will encourage us and motivate us to continue preaching the gospel to the world and to our, our neighbors right around us. They will help us to do these things and to keep the main thing the main thing. You know, it's not lost on me that at the front of our auditorium that we have a cross front and center because Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. I don't know how many of you pay attention to, to logos, but on the logo of our church, right in the middle of it, is a crown. Because Christ was raised in accordance with the scriptures on the third day. Like these, this truth of the gospel is at the center of how we live and operate as a church, and it always will be. This is great news. This is good news that Christ died, was buried, was raised may we not be known in our community, may we not be known in the world first and foremost as a church that is open to spiritual gifts and that practices certain spiritual gifts. I would love for us to be known by those things, but not as the first thing out of people's mouths. I want our church and the elders long for our church and I hope you long for our church to first and foremost be known as a group of people that believe the gospel and that preach the gospel and know that it is of first importance and until Christ returns, may we keep the main thing.